Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get started here. Thanks for joining us today. Today we're presenting wastewater treatment strategies for biological nutrient removal of nitrogen. I'm Shannon Miller. I'm a MARCOM coordinator here at YSI, and I'll be moderating the webinar today. Uh, joining me are presenters Laura St. Pierre, YSI product segment manager, and Ben Barker, YSI applications engineer. Uh, YSI has designed and manufactured sensors, instruments, and solutions for water quality monitoring for over 70 years. And Lara has worked here for over 17 of those, and Ben has been with YSI for over three years. Uh, we are presenting the webinar remotely from our homes, so please bear with us if we experience any audio issues. Uh, just let us know in the sidebar. Uh, we've also set aside some time to address questions at the end, so feel free to ask those as you think of them while we're going through the presentation, um, and we'll get to those at the end. Uh, please note also that the webinar is being recorded, and we will share a link to the recording in a post-webinar email. And I also want to mention there's a brief four-question survey at the end. Uh, we'd appreciate it if you could take the time to complete that. Your feedback is important to us, and it also helps us plan for future webinars. Um, now, without further ado, I'll go ahead and turn it over to Laura. Uh, thanks, Shannon. Um, and hello, everyone. Thank you for attending today's webinar on wastewater treatment strategies uh, for biological nutrient removal of nitrogen. Okay. Uh, wastewater effluent limit, limits for nitrogen continue to be lowered as our water resources continue to be affected by excess nutrients. In general, tradition, uh, traditional treatment facilities were not designed to meet these lower limits, so this webinar will explain uh, various treatment options that can be added to your process to help you meet new or increasingly stringent nitrogen effluent limits and how monitoring the process can help. Here are the topics we will be covering. First, I will review the science of nitrogen uh, and how uh, nitrogen behaves in wastewater. After that, I'm going to hand it over to Ben and he will review activated sludge, uh, the activated sludge process as well as biological nutrient removal monitoring and biological nutrient removal strategies for nitrogen removal. Ben is also gonna highlight a few specific uh, case studies. So let's quickly cover the science of nitrogen. We wanna start here to give everyone some background on the chemistry and also talk about why there is a focus on nitrogen reduction in wastewater treatment facilities. Okay, so let's cover the basics uh, of nitrogen. <clears throat> nitrogen is one of five main elements of living organisms. The other four elements include carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and phosphorus. Nitrogen makes up, makes up about 16% of all living organisms. It also accounts for about 78% of the Earth's atmosphere. Nitrogen was discovered by Swedish, Scottish, and English scientists in the 1770s when they were trying to separate oxygen from the atmosphere. Scottish chemist and physician Daniel uh, Rutherford was the first to publish his findings in 1772. Some common uses of nitrogen include fertilizer, number one, uh, uh, food preservation, coolant, uh, pharmaceutical manufacturing, uh, and manufacturing and uh, stainless steel production. Okay, so how does nitrogen impact the environment? 
Excess nutrients in our waterways, including nitrogen, can lead to eutrophication, which is the process that occurs when the environment becomes enriched with nutrients, increasing the amount of plant and algae growth. An increase in algae growth could lead to an algal bloom. And an algal bloom, an algal bloom is a large, rapid growth of algae that can be catastrophic to a water body. An algal bloom blocks sunlight from getting to other plants. Algal blooms can consume oxygen and cause dead zones or areas in a water body that have been completely depleted of oxygen. This can result in aquatic life die-offs like the fish kill pictured in this slide. If the algal bloom is toxic algae, such as cyanobacteria, a type of blue-green algae, it can be harmful to humans and pets. I'm sure you've heard of harmful algal blooms or HABs or HABs. This is when an algae is toxic to human, humans and pets and, and can affect the liver and nervous systems. In addition to feeding algal blooms, some forms of nitrogen like ammonium uh, are directly toxic to aquatic life. Nitrogen can also trigger a spike in, in pH levels, uh, which can stress fish causing other health, health issues. Nitrogen is the limiting nutrient in estuary and saltwater systems. That means if we add nitrogen to these brackish and saltwater ecosystems, that nitrogen will be readily used by algae in the water, resulting in an algal bloom or large rapid growth of algae. Most nitrogen loading comes from non-point source pollution, mainly runoff. But like with phosphorus, water resource recovery facilities are, are, are considered a point source for nitrogen and therefore processes are put in place to remove nitrogen from the wastewater stream before it is discharged back into the environment. Okay, let's review how nitrogen uh, naturally moves through the environment. Similar to the water cycle, which maps how a water molecule continuously moves through the environment, the nitrogen cycle maps the continuous circulation of various forms of nitrogen as it moves through the environment. One step in the cycle is nitrogen fixation. This is when nitrogen gas is converted by bacteria, plants, and animals into inorganic compounds such as ammonia and ammonium. Another step is nitrification. This is when nitrifying bacteria in the water and soil transfer ammonia into, <clears throat> into nitrate. And the third step is denitrification. Denitrification occurs when denitrifying bacteria in the soil and water transform nitrate back into the atmosphere as nitrogen gas. Okay, so let's review nitrogen uh, in wastewater. <clears throat> in the United States, final effluent limits for total nitrogen, ammonia nitrogen, and nitrate nitrogen are regulated by the US EPA through the National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System, commonly referred to as NPDES. Depending on the location of a facility, the local interstate agencies may also regulate the effluent of municipal wastewater treatment. So here is a little bit of background on NPDES permitting. As mentioned in our phosphorus webinar, People in the United States became very concerned about the country's waterways in the late 60s and early 70s, when a picture of a burning river made the cover of Time magazine. <clears throat> the Cuyahoga River near Cleveland, Ohio had caught fire again on June 22, 1969, after which Time magazine ran a front page uh, picture of the river on fire. That picture was from 12 years before because that fire or that river caught fire all the time. So this publication has been given credit for starting the public outcry 
that encouraged scientists and legislators to work hard to figure out why this occurred and how it could be avoided. As a result, the 1972 Clean Water Act was introduced by the federal government, leading to increased funding for wastewater treatment plants to reduce point source pollution. Over the next 20 years, around $350 billion was spent on constructing and operating wastewater treatment facilities. So in addition to protecting our waterways from industrial pollution, the Clean Water Act and wastewater permitting also address nutrient loading. Concerns over excess nutrients and the devastating effects of eutrophication began with phosphorus and carbon in freshwater systems in the 1960s. However, eutrophication continued to be a problem in estuaries and coastal waters. It was then determined that this was because nitrogen, uh, <clears throat> the nitrogen was the problem nutrient in saltwater systems. And there had been a dramatic increase in the use of nitrogen, specifically fertilizers, in coastal areas uh, in the 1960s with the Green Revolution. Okay. Um, so nitrogen NPDES uh, limits have lagged behind phosphorus limits. <clears throat> However, nitrogen effluent limits are becoming more prevalent. Today, nitrogen limits in estuaries and coastal waters of concern usually have a total nitrogen limit below five milligrams per liter. Other common nitrogen effluent limits include ammonia nitrogen and nitrate nitrogen. So nitrogen enters the wastewater stream from a few sources, <clears throat> including hum human and animal urea, which wastes excess nitrogen from our bodies uh, through urine, uh, comes from fecal waste or any decomposing organic matter, and from nitrogen-rich fertilizer uh, runoff that can enter the wastewater stream through combined sewers, uh, infiltration, and inflow. Without wastewater treatment, inorganic nitrogen would accumulate in the waterways, leading to eutrophication uh, by algae. The biological nutrient removal process simulates the nitrification-denitrification portion of the nitrogen cycle to return nitrogen to the atmosphere. The purple boxes in this graph represent the nitrogen cycle in a wastewater treatment process where ammonia nitrogen is nitrified to nitrite nitrogen and then through aeration converted to nitrate nitrogen, which is then denitrified to nitrogen gas. This is a very basic representation of biological nutrient removal of, nitro of nitrogen. So a BNR, or biological nutrient uh, removal process, is defined as the removal of a nutrient, in this case nitrogen, by using certain microbes and keeping them healthy and happy. Uh, and certain bugs thrive in certain areas of the process, such as the aerobic, anoxic, or anaerobic zones. These wastewater processes are arranged in many different configurations to achieve uh, the desired treatment. So here are the, uh, the different forms of nitrogen in wastewater. Uh, ammonia and ammonium are converted to nitrite and then nitrate and finally nitrogen gas. You can see in this image here, uh, the Animox process bypasses the nitrate step and goes straight to the, uh, to the nitrogen gas. Um, some other common terms uh, used uh, is uh, total deldol nitrogen or TKN. It's frequently monitored and recorded at wastewater treatment plants, but typically does not have an effluent limit associated with it. TKN includes ammonia, ammonium, and 
organic nitrogen. TN stands for total nitrogen and is a combined measurement of TKN and all other forms of nitrogen. All right, so that brings us to our first audience poll question. I'll turn it over to Shannon to conduct the poll. Thanks, Sarah. Um, let's see here. So what is the nitrogen-based effluent limit for your facility? Um, and you can select more than one here. And if it's none of these, just um, ignore the poll. So I'll give you a few minutes to complete that. Close to 50% of you have responded. I'll give you just a few more seconds here. All right, well, thank you all for your responses. It looks like we had a 63% response rate. I'm going to go ahead and close the poll here. And it looks like we share the results. We have about 10% with a greater than 10 mg, 26% uh, at 5 to 10. 22% less than 5, 22% ammonia nitrogen limit only, and about a quarter of you were unsure. All right. I'm going to turn it over to Ben now. All right. Uh, thanks, Shannon and Laura. Uh, can you see my screen? Is it up? Okay. No. No? Okay. One second. Okay, there we go. Now it should be good. I can see it. <laughs> All right. Okay, now nitrogen removal occurs in the secondary treatment uh, in a process called activated sludge, in which we will talk about in this section. So let's start off by defining activated sludge. Activated sludge is a biologically active process that relies on the development of a mixed culture of microorganisms to metabolize pollutants in the wastewater. Activated sludge occurs just after primary treatment, so it is considered a secondary treatment process and probably the most common secondary treatment strategy out there. Immediately following activated sludge is usually secondary clarifiers in which all of the biological solids are separated from the treated water. The activated sludge biologically removes organic matter, matter, nutrients, and other contaminants from the water. 
And of course, all of these BNR strategies we are talking about today are types of activated sludge processes. So what are the requirements for activated sludge to occur? Well, first we need the microorganisms, often referred to as bugs. Um, I will probably often refer to them as bugs as well, so uh, keep that in mind. Uh, and these are a community of different microbes and bacteria. These bugs are introduced to wastewater at the beginning of the activated sludge tanks in the form of biologically active sludge or wastewater from a different part of the process. Then we need food for these microorganisms. The incoming wastewater typically has high BOD, which is used by the bugs to grow and reproduce. In some cases, a plant will not have enough BOD for their process to occur, in which they can add supplemental carbon. Next, in order for our bugs to be able to metabolize all this food, they will have oxygen requirements. Depending on the type of process and the bacteria that we want, we will either want a lot of oxygen or we will want very low to no oxygen. Then we need ample mixing, which helps maintain a suspended flock for, these, uh, for the microorganisms to grow on. And additionally, this creates a uniform environment throughout the tank, so treatment occurs throughout the entire water column. And then finally, we need, to, we, need to, we need a way to control how many bugs are actually in the activated sludge tanks, uh, which is usually done with return activated sludge and waste activated sludge processes, which I will talk about more in a, in a few slides. Next, I would like to briefly talk about some typical process parameters that help control and monitor the activated sludge process. First is MLVSS, or Mixed Liquor Volatile Suspended Solids. This parameter is a measure of the amount of bugs that we have in our activated sludge system. Next, we have FM ratio, or Food to Microorganism Ratio. In this parameter, we are trying to make sure that we have the right amount of bugs for the right amount of food coming in from the wastewater. So remember, our food is going to be our incoming BOD, and the microorganisms are going to be our MLVSS. Then we have SRT, which stands for solid retention time, and it's also sometimes referred to as uh, sludge age as well. SRT is measured in days and essentially is a measure for how long we need the bugs to stay within the activated sludge system for them to be able to maintain their population. And finally, we have sludge settleability, which gives us a measure of the quality of our sludge. Monitoring this will give us an indication of how well the sludge will settle in our clarifiers and if the activated sludge tanks are in good condition. The picture on the right shows us how settleability is measured in the specialized, conta specialized containers called settleometers. So there are three main stages to the activated sludge process, each creating a different environment to encourage the growth of different types of bacteria. We will go through the, the aerobic, the anoxic, and a little bit about the anaerobic stages uh, to get and give the requirements for each. So first we will talk about the aerobic zone, sometimes called the oxic zone. This zone provides an oxygen, oxygen rich environment for the nitrifying bacteria to grow. We have two different types of bacteria that will grow here, usually bacteria from the genus Nitrosomonas, which will convert ammonium into nitrite. And then we have Nitrobacter, uh, which is another bacteria that will convert nitrite into nitrate. In most BNR configurations, the aerobic zones will follow anoxic or anaerobic zones. This is because the nitrifying bacteria do not actively require 
a carbon source for their metabolic processes, while the anoxic and anaerobic bacteria do require carbon. Aeration is provided in this portion of the tank with either uh, blower diffuser systems for fine or coarse bubble aeration, or some systems will use mechanical aerators. Activated sludge systems can sometimes be sensitive due to the nature of creating what is basically a small ecosystem of microbes. So meeting and maintaining the requirements for each are very important. For nitrification, dissolved oxygen of two milligrams per liter will ensure full nitrification, which is why two milligrams per liter is usually the rule of thumb when using DO control for your aeration. For pH, nitrifying bacteria can be sensitive to large swings. So it is important to maintain a pH between 6.8 and 8. Alkalinity is tied closely with pH as it acts as a buffer to potential swings in pH. The higher your alkalinity, the more your system will be able to maintain a stable pH. For nitrifying bacteria, maintaining an alkalinity of, least, of at least 50 milligrams per liter is required and 100 milligrams per liter is uh, preferable. In nitrification systems, oxidation reduction potential, or ORP, will have a value between positive 100 and positive 350 millivolts. ORP values react to the biological activity occurring in the water. If the environment has more oxidizing potential, then there will be a more positive ORP value. This is what we are looking for in this zone because we are oxidizing the nitrogen molecules. Nitrification also requires a relatively longer SRT, or solid retention time, since they are a slower growing bacteria, meaning that we are going to maintain this bacteria within the activated sludge tanks longer to ensure they are able to grow and maintain their population. And then finally, nitrifying bacteria are known to be sensitive to toxic substances that may come through the influent. Having an early warning system using an online sensor for uh, pH, TSS, COD, or TOC can potentially save your activated sludge system uh, from disaster if a large amount of a toxic substance uh, was to come through your plant. Now onto the anoxic zone. The goal of this zone is to provide a low oxygen environment with nitrates still present as the source of oxygen. Denitrifying bacteria, such as the Pseudomonas, requires a carbon source and the nitrate in which they can convert that nitrate into nitrogen gas. The gas then escapes the process by bubbling out of the water and off into the atmosphere. The anoxic zones usually come before the aerobic zones because they require that carbon source, whereas nitrification does not. The anoxic bacteria can take advantage of the incoming wastewater BOD and convert as much nitrate into nitrogen gas as possible before moving onto the aerobic portion. Also, it is important to note that since there is not aeration in the anoxic zone, there would also be no mixing since the aeration does a great job of doing this in the aerobic zone. Therefore, additional mixing needs to be included in the form of a submersible mixer or uh, some type of uh, bubble mixing system. So the requirements for denitrification are quite different than the aerobic zone. The largest difference is that is the DO requirements, in which we want less than 0.1 milligrams per liter DO in order for our denitrifying bacteria to utilize that available nitrate. pH requirements are the same in which 6.8 to 8 is acceptable, 
although these bacteria are less sensitive than the, than the nitrifiers, um, our ORP values in the zone have dropped down to a range around zero in which negative 50 to positive 50 millivolts are acceptable. The carbon requirements for this denitrifying bacteria are that we need at least 2.86 milligrams per liter BOD to one milligram per liter nitrate in order to have sufficient carbon for full denitrification. If we have too low of a ratio, then we will uh, need to dose additional carbon, which can come in the form of methanol, for example. Sometimes to increase the amount of nitrate in this early part of the process, we can use internal mixed liquor recirculation or IMLR um, to introduce more nitrate to the beginning of the activated sludge process. And then, as I mentioned on the last slide, additional mixing may be required since we don't have that aeration action to mix the water. And finally, we get to the anaerobic zone, which I won't talk about too much because this is mainly used in a biological phosphorus removal systems. So in anaerobic systems, we not only have a very low oxygen environment where we need zero milligrams per liter DO, but we also want this to be a low nitrate environment as well. Which removes, which removes all of the options for oxygen in the system. Again, in BNR, these are used for biological phosphorus removal, which is really a two-step process in which we take phosphorus accumulating organisms, or PAOs, and put them through an anaerobic zone, followed by an anaerobic zone. If you want more information on biological phosphorus removal, uh, please check out our uh, P-removal webinar, webinar that we did in April, and you can find that uh, on our website. Now to put this all together, let's take a look at a pretty popular nitrogen removal co configuration, the modified Ludzak Ettinger process, or MLE for short. Starting at the, uh, at the beginning on the left side of the slide, we have our primary effluent, which is the water that will be entering our activated sludge process. The first stage of the MLE process is an anoxic zone in which, will we, in which we will be denitrifying and removing any nitrate we have and converting it into nitrogen gas. From there, the water will then flow into an aerobic zone where dissolved oxygen is present. Ammonia will be converted into nitrite and then nitrate in this stage. In the MLE configuration, the internal mixed liquor recirculation pumps water from one end of the, uh, from the end of the aerobic zone, which is high in nitrate, back into the anoxic zone to give this nitrate another chance to another chance to denitrify. The water then flows into the clarifier in which the biological solids will settle to the bottom of the tank while the clean secondary effluent water will flow over the weirs and move on to the next stage. The biologically active sludge is removed from the bottom of the clarifier by a rake arm, which will send this sludge to either uh, waste activate, activated sludge, WAS, or re return activated sludge, uh, RAS. Uh, Waste-activated sludge just goes into the solids handling portion of the plant, uh, while return-activated sludge brings bugs back to the beginning of the activated sludge tanks to reseed the incoming wastewater. What we should be left with after our clarifiers is a low solids, low total nitrogen secondary effluent that should be able to meet our total nitrogen effluent limit. So we have our activated sludge environment with a whole community of different microorganisms living together in the tanks. 
which of these microbes actually perform the conversion throughout the nitrogen cycle? We first have our, uh, our ammonia nitrifiers, uh, which are most commonly uh, from the genus Nitrosomonas. These are a autotrophic rod-shaped bacteria that oxidize ammonium into nitrite. Now our nitrite oxidizers are another autotrophic rod-shaped bacteria from a genus called Nitrobacter, and they convert nitrite into nitrate. And finally, we have our denitrifiers called uh, Pseudomonas. They convert nitrate into nitrogen gas under anoxic conditions, uh, like we said, and these bacteria are considered heterotrophs and use the oxygen and nitrate to oxidize available car carbon. Okay, so now on to part four. We're going to talk about how to monitor your, BA, uh, your biological nutrient removal system with online analytical instrumentation. So first, I would like to mention that all of the sensors being shown in this section are part of YSI's IQ SensorNet, which is our plant-wide wastewater monitoring and control system. YSI IQ SensorNet has, a robust, uh, has robust wastewater sensors for all types of processes, from the influent BNR activated sludge systems to the effluent and many more. So with IQ SensorNet, you can monitor parameters throughout your entire BNR system with a single controller which can be networked to include up to 20 sensors on a single system. All of the data collected with an IQ SensorNet system can easily be sent to your SCADA, which can then control aeration or control chemical usage within a BNR system, or it can monitor for compliance with nutrient effluent limits. Now for each sensor used in BNR applications, we'll describe where it is used and the purpose of the measurement. We're go we are, of course, going to bring back our modified Ludzak-Ettinger configuration uh, for a bit of a visual here. So we will begin with optical dissolved oxygen. This sensor is most commonly used in, aerob in the aerobic portion of the tank, uh, where diffusers or mechanical aerators are being used to create dissolved oxygen for those nitrifying bacteria. The purpose of this sensor is to be used as aeration control. Depending on the type of control strategy, a dissolved oxygen set point can be used to maintain DO at a particular level, as an example, 2.0 milligrams per liter. If DO rises above 2.0 milligrams per liter in the, in the aerobic basin, then the plant can dial back the aeration to save energy. If the DO is lower than 2 milligrams per liter, then they can increase aeration output to ensure they're achieving full denitrification. Next, we'll take a look at pH and ORP. Starting with ORP, this sensor is mainly used in the anoxic portion of the tank. Since there is very low DO in the anoxic portion of the tank, it can be difficult to tell when the tank is actually in, in anoxic conditions. Very small changes can push this process into anaerobic conditions, which is something that a DO sensor can't pick up. Instead, an ORP sensor can give an indication of the biological activity happening within the tank and let you know that the bacteria have the right conditions for denitrification. Now for pH, this sensor is useful in the aerobic portion of the tank because the nitrification process is especially sensitive to pH, particularly those nitrobacter uh, bacteria. A pH reading can let an operator know if conditions in this zone are harmful to the nitrifying bacteria, and pH can also be measured for this purpose uh, upstream of the activated sludge system as an early warning sign that something harmful may be coming through. 
So now ammonium, specifically the ion selective electrode sensor. Uh, this sensor is particularly important in monitoring the aerobic zone. The aerobic zone is where nitrification occurs. So, uh, so where we are uh, turning our ammonium into nitrate. In this application, an ammonium ISE can be used to control aeration as well, usually in a combination with DO sensors. Using ammonia-based aeration control, an ammonium measurement can be used to control aeration directly or to adjust DO set points based on ammonium loadings. Ammonia-based aeration control also has the option of feed-forward or feedback control, so lo the location of the sensor within the basin is actually important as well. At the effluent, you can also use an ammonium ISE to monitor your effluent ammonium concentrations. This can be useful when your effluent permit is specifically ammonia nitrogen rather than total nitrogen. One drawback to any ammonium ISE sensor is that it is difficult to maintain accuracy uh, down to really low concentrations, uh, say below one milligram per liter. Or really more realistically, it has most, most of its trouble below 0.5 milligrams per liter. In certain applications, ammonium can uh, typically be very low, near zero for a majority of the time, which is difficult for ISE technology to remain accurate. The sensor will also drift quicker uh, and also can be more difficult to calibrate in this type of application. Uh, these applications are often at the very end of aerobic basins or at the, at the end of the plant, uh, you know, where ammonium is near zero. Uh, so my recommendation is usually focused around the one milligram per liter of ammonium. If you're consistently at or near one milligram per liter concentration, then an ammonium ISE will, will do perfectly fine uh, for, or for your application. However, if your measurement is below one milligram per liter and, consist, or, and consistently very low, like below 0 0.5, then we do have another option for you. And that would be the ELISA NH4 wet chemistry analyzer. This ammonium analyzer takes online readings using the indophenol method, which is traditionally a laboratory colorimetric test. The wet chemistry analyzer remains accurate down to low ammonium levels, with the ELISA measuring down to 0.02 milligrams per liter. The ELISA will give continuous measurements about every 10 minutes, which can still be used for feedback analysis uh, for ammonia-based aeration control, or for monitoring the effluent of, a, of the aerobic tanks or the final, effluent of the final effluent of the facility. So ELISA is our latest and greatest product uh, being re released in the past year. Um, it can provide online wet chemistry analysis for either ammonium or orthophosphate. Uh, it is very simple to service, has amazingly low reagent use, um, it has auto calibration and auto cleaning functions that comes uh, standard. And now we can support single and dual channel applications. So we also have an ISC sensor for measuring nitrate. These ISC sensors would be best used in the anoxic zones in which nitrate are converted and removed from the process as nitrogen gas. Not only can nitrate measurements at this location be used for monitoring their nitrate removal, but it can also be used to control some important parts of the anoxic part of the process. For example, carbon can be dosed in some anoxic tanks where there is not enough BOD available in the wastewater. A nitrate sensor can be used to control directly, uh, to directly control how much carbon is dosed if carbon is the limiting factor. In addition, if their anoxic zone lacks enough nitrate for denitrification, 
then it can also control or be used to monitor internal mixed liquor recirculation, which is high in nitrate. Some applications even directly measure the nitrate in the recirculation channels to know exactly how much nitrate they're bringing back to the anoxic zones. Of course, these sensors can, be also, or can also be used to monitor nitrate coming from their final effluent if they have a nitrate effluent permit or use it to monitor their total nitrate permit, total nitrogen permit. One of the biggest reasons to use the nitrate ISE over the other nitrate technologies is its ability to be measured with ammonium on the same sensor. Our variant sensor can measure both nitrate and ammonium, so if there's a location where both measurements are beneficial, it would be a great idea to use a, a variant. Now on to the next sensor, the UV nitrate nitrite sensor, called the NitroViz 701 and 705. The locations and purposes are the same as the nitrate ISE, but the UV sensor can provide a more reliable sensor at lower measurement ranges and requires less maintenance as well. Besides the accuracy and maintenance, the UV sensors have the benefit of measuring both nitrate and nitrite, uh, which nitrite is the intermediate stage of the nitrification process. This can be beneficial in shortcut uh, nitrification processes like Anamox, or it can be an indicator of an issue in other BNR processes. And then finally, we have our total suspended solid sensor. This sensor is often used in the activated sludge basins, either in anoxic or aerobic zones. The TSS measurement is used here to get a measurement for how many bugs are in the system, or uh, if you remember from earlier, the MLVSS. This MLSS measurement can be used to control for solids process parameters, such as solids retention time, uh, food to microorganism ratio, or you can just control for a specific mixed liquor suspended solid set point. Additionally, TSS sensors can be used to get an indication of the amount of solids being sent back to the activated sludge basins from the clarifier or return activated sludge. This also helps control for SRT and FM ratio. And now we're going to uh, go on with our second poll question of the day. Of the day. So, uh, Shannon? Thanks, Ben. So our second poll question today is, what parameters do you measure to monitor and control your BNR process? Um, and you can select more than one answer here. So I'll give you a minute to complete that. We still have some votes coming in, so I'll give it just a few more seconds. Okay, I'll go ahead and close the poll. So let's take a look at the results here. Uh, we've got some pretty high percentages on most of those parameters. 
looks like dissolved oxygen is the highest at 90%. All right, uh, Ben? All right, awesome, thank you. Um, oh, here we go. All right. There we go. And finally, on to part five, in which we are going to go through several uh, BNR strategies, along with the pros and cons of each process. So the first process we'll talk about is the uh, Wormen process. This is a direct line nitrification denitrification system, which places the aerobic zone upstream and the anoxic zone downstream. This is the logical order for the nitrogen cycle in which you turn all of the nitrogen into nitrate and then convert all of that into nitrogen gas in the anoxic zone. Although this makes sense logically, this setup has uh, several major disadvantages. Since the aer aerobic zone comes first, all of the incoming BOD will be used in the aerobic portion of the tank, requiring extra oxygen requirements, and it also does not leave any BOD for the anoxic zone meaning you'll likely have to dose carbon to get any denitrification. Additionally, the aerobic zone consumes alkalinity, while the anoxic zone produces it. In this configuration, you would need to dose alkalinity as well, uh, as well for nitrification. And then finally, a big reason that most activated sludge systems end with an aerobic zone is to avoid anoxic, anoxic conditions within the clarifier. When nitrogen gas is being produced in the clarifier, the bubbles, uh, the bubble, the nit uh, nitrogen gas bubbles will want to rise from the sludge, but it will also cause uh, the sludge to float as well, meaning that you'll have settling problems in your clarifiers and some solids will then even move uh, past the clarifiers into the secondary effluent. So to solve all of these issues, all you need to do is place the anoxic zone first, followed by the aerobic zone which is exactly what they did uh, with the Ludzak Ettinger process. So this is an AO process uh, referring to ano uh, anoxic and then oxic zone, uh, which can take advantage of the influent BOD. And then it also returns additional nitrate through return activated sludge uh, to the beginning of the anoxic zone. This process is an improvement over the Wormen process because it utilizes incoming BOD for the anoxic zone which of course means that we are using less total aeration because we aren't using aeration to metabolize this BOD. Also, the anoxic zone produces some alkalinity, uh, which is then utilized in the aerobic zone, which reduces the demand for alkalinity on the, uh, on the system overall. However, the main con to the Ludzak-Ettinger process is that with the aerobic zone being second, this is going to produce quite a bit of nitrate, which may not get the, chan the, the chance to denitrify. Although the return activated sludge does bring back some nitrate to the anoxic zone, it's not gonna do the best job at it. So instead, uh, plants modified the Ledzak Ettinger uh, design by adding an internal mixed liquor recirculation, which recycles nitrogen rich water from the end of the aerobic tanks directly back to the beginning of the anoxic zone. This provides the same benefits as the Ledzak Ettinger uh, but this configuration can yield much higher total nitrogen removal. 
The only downside to this process is if you recycle that aerobic water um, at too high of a rate, this can inhibit anoxic conditions and stop denitrification. Next, we have the four-stage Bardenflow system, which is an alternating anoxic-oxic process with four stages. This system is great because it can achieve ultra-low total nitrogen removal. Um, the beginning half of the system is the same as the MLE, uh, or the modified Ludzak-Ettinger, but the second half is another anoxic and anaerobic process uh, to really uh, get another chance at removing that nitrate in the second anoxic zone. And then finishing up with another uh, with another aerobic zone. Some systems can use that second anoxic zone as a swing zone, in which they can swing between anoxic or or aerobic conditions, depending on seasonal changes or loadings. The downside to the four-stage Bardenfo is that it requires a lot of real estate to fit four different stages, and and carbon addition will likely be needed in that second uh, anoxic zone. Um, for denitrification. This is, and this is exactly what a plant in uh, Exeter, New Hampshire did, along with another facility uh, in Newmarket, New Hampshire. These plants were given new strict total nitrogen limits of eight milligrams per liter uh, to protect the Great Bay Estuary. Both plants have two separate four-stage Bardenfo trains, each monitored by a YSI IQ sensor net system of nine sensors. So looking at the top train, they start off with two anoxic zones and a swing zone monitored by ORP and pH. Then they move into three aerobic zones, each being monitored and controlled by a DO sensor, uh, by an FDO sensor. Um, and the last aerobic zone uh, also includes a variant for monitoring ammonium and nitrate. Next, we move on to the next two swing zones, which will usually be used as, as an anoxic zones. And these are monitored with another set of ORP and pH sensors. And then finally, uh, the last zone is an aerobic zone monitored by another variant to ensure total nitrogen uh, is low when, as it leaves the basins. Now we'll talk about the step feed AO process, which is another alternating anoxic-oxic process with a minimum of, of six steps um, but there, are, uh, but often there can be many more than six steps. Uh, this system is mostly unique for how they split their primary effluent to the beginning of each anoxic zone. This system uh, also includes return activated sludge, and some systems, although not pictured in this diagram, uh, can use nitrate recycle between passes to bring nitrified water to these uh, anoxic zones. This system can achieve very low total nitrogen concentration and it can get this treatment at, a, at relatively lower volumes as well, meaning that they are concentrating their MLSS, uh, so the amount of bugs, uh, they're concentrating them into a smaller volume, but to get the same amount of treatment. The control of primary effluent to different anoxic zones provides versatility in that they can optimize their process seasonally or with load changes by introducing more primary effluent at different parts of the system. And then the cons of the system is that there are uh, concerns with DO carryover from aerobic zones to anoxic zones and also foaming due to the concentrated MLSS. However, uh, there have been demonstrated solutions to handling these issues. Also, carbon feed is still required. Although different carbon feed strategies can be used, it has been shown that 
dosing carbon individually to each anoxic zone yields the best results. And you can actually uh, control carbon dosing with a nitrate sensor uh, like the YSI Nitrobits. So as an example, uh, several plants in the New York City area use step feed uh, AO processes. For instance, uh, Bowery Bay, pictured to the right, uh, over by the LaGuardia Airport, is one of the five uh, New York City DEP plants uh, to utilize YSI Nitrovis sensors in their BNR process. Uh, New York City DP, DEP has 60 Nitrovis sensors across these five plants to automatically control the carbon dosing into each of these anoxic zones. One of the newer processes that you'll likely hear about soon are Animox systems. This system is a shortcut denitrification process which utilizes special Animox bacteria to convert ammonium directly into nitrogen gas with nitrite as an intermediate stage, meaning that they cut out the nitrate altogether. This can either be mainstream or sidestream treatment. The benefits of this type of system is that it can potentially be the most effective and efficient nitrogen removal option out there. Since they bypass an entire step of nitrification, these systems are able to cut aeration by up to 60% and then also save significantly on carbon uh, because you won't need as much carbon to accomplish that denitrification step anymore. However, the downfall to this process right now is that it is not well understood because the process is fairly new. We need more research and more plants that will try to implement mainstream Animox for it to become more reliable and for a higher adoption of the process. This process is difficult because it tends to be unreliable and difficult to control with the amount of information that we have available. Um, but there is hope that one day this could be the standard for with which to remove uh, nitrogen from wastewater. The very first mainstream Animox plant in the US, uh, Alexandria Renew in Virginia, utilizes YSI sensors to control their Animox process and they have been very successful in implementing uh, mainstream Animox uh, since, since launching this plant. Next, we have oxidation dishes, which are very similar to the typical plug flow systems we previously talked about, except that they typically occur in this circular racetrack configuration. Activated sludge uh, systems utilize a longer SRT time to remove organics and nutrients. The benefit of oxidation ditches is that, is that they are very versatile. You can adapt most of the plug flow configurations into oxidation ditches, uh, which tends to have lower operational and maintenance costs. The cons is that these oxidation ditches do require a comparatively larger land footprint, um, and effluent TSS values tend to be higher than plug flow systems. This particular oxidation ditch is a system from South Licking County, Ohio, in which they have three circular raceways flowing from the inside to the outside. Since they begin, uh, since they begin with an anoxic zone, followed by the aerobic portion on the outside, uh, this is very similar to a Ludzak-Ettinger process. The mechanical, the mechanical aerators on each pass are controlled by the measurements from the YSI uh, IQ SensorNet system, in which they measure ammonium and nitrate on the middle pass, and then ammonium, nitrate, and DO on the outer pass. The middle pass actually acts as a swing zone in which these air inside aerators can turn on or off depending on the ammonium concentration here. It works very well for their plant as they were able to reduce their total nitrogen effluent limit and save a lot of energy in the process. 
Now, finally, onto our last process, uh, the sequence batch reactor, or SBR. These systems perform, perform all of the uh, steps of a nutrient removal in a single tank before sending uh, treated water to the effluent. A traditional SBR usually has four stages, a fill, react, settle, and decant stage. Control systems and timers are used to optimize and adjust the process to just the right amount of nitrification and denitrification. The benefit of this type of system is that it requires a small footprint and it is also uh, very versatile in that it can be adjusted and controlled very closely depending on the goal of the process. So as an example, I will plug our fellow Xylem sister company, Sanitaire, and their Ikeus SBR system. This is a continuous flow SBR, which eliminates the fill phase and goes straight to react, settle, and decant. Using a complete sanitary control system and sensors from YSI IQ SensorNet, they're able to uh, time these phases perfectly to achieve the nit nitrogen removal that they need. A wastewater treatment facility in East Berlin, Pennsylvania, utilizes the ICIUS SBR system and YSI instrumentation to meet their Chesapeake Bay uh, nutrient limits of less than three milligrams per liter total nitrogen. A 14-day test of the plant yielded great results uh, with very low BAOD, TSS, ammonium, uh, a total nitrogen right at three, and then total phosphorus at 0.7 milligrams per liter. So before we let you guys go for the day, I have a couple take-home points uh, that I hope you'll remember about BNR processes and nitrogen removal. So first, uh, excess nitrogen causes eutrophication in estuaries and coastal ecosystems, having an adverse effect on the ecosystem. Removing nitrogen from wastewater can help mitigate these effects. Biological nutrient removal is an activated sludge process that requires careful control of the environment to encourage nitrification and denitrification, resulting in the removal of nitrogen from the process as nitrogen, as nitrogen gas. Then finally, selecting the correct BNR configuration for your facility and carefully monitoring uh, and control with online instrumentation uh, will lead to efficient and effective nitrogen removal. And just a quick, uh, here are our references if you would like to check them out. And that's the last slide. Uh, don't forget that we have a bunch of great material on our website that can help you learn about wastewater instrumentation and, uh, and biological nutrient removal uh, applications. And uh, so please check out our newest application note about solid retention time or our most recent blog post, uh, five questions to ask when selecting a UV or UV vis sensor. Um, feel free to reach out to Laura I with any questions you may have about instrumentation or BNR or other applications for instrumentation. And now, uh, and now I'll bring Shannon back in to see if there are any questions we can answer. All right. Thank you. It looks like we had a couple come in throughout the webinar. Uh, just a couple though. So if you have any questions, now is the time to ask them. We do have a couple minutes here. Um, I'll go ahead and start with the first one though is, are primary clarifiers required for the MLE process? Uh, I would say that yes, yes, they are. Um, primary clarifiers would take away most of the like inorganic uh, or like the uh, inorganic and uh, uh, larger solids. Uh, so 
needing that primary uh, that primary clarification uh, would take a lot of that out and provide you with a good uh, a good environment for your uh, for your uh, activated sludge process. So usually activated sludge does need to follow a uh, uh, primary treatment. Okay, thanks, Ben. I have another question here. Uh, do the probe controllers have Modbus and or TCP IP capability for data logging? Um, and are data graphics volatile or can data be archived for trending and interpreting later? Uh, so yes, uh, we have uh, several different uh, ways to communicate with our controllers. Um, for instance, uh, Ethernet, Ethernet, uh, Ethernet IP, Modbus, TCP IP, um, Profinet, uh, Modbus, Profibus, and uh, current outputs. Uh, all those can be easily sent uh, to to a SCADA. Um, and we also do have data logging on the controller as well. Uh, so not only would you, uh, which you would be able to download with a USB. So not only would you be able to uh, have the storage on the controller, you'll also be sending. Uh, You'll also be uh, sending your data to SCADA, which will likely be recording that data as well. Um, so, so yes. Oh, sorry. Okay, I have another question here. Um, it says, what did you mean with the foaming concerns? So uh, in those in that particular uh, step feed process, uh, the MLSS concentration, uh, when you take a process that has a lot more solids uh, or has a higher concentration of, of biologically active solids, it can tend to foam a little bit more. Um, so that is something that uh, that process or that a uh, customer or not customer well customers. Um, that use step feed processes have come across and they would have to think of, or they would have to come up with a solution to reducing the amount of foam. Um, so uh, hopefully that answers your question. Okay, thanks Ben. Uh, that brings us to the end of our webinar. We do have a few more questions that we didn't get to, but we will follow up with you. Um, there is a short survey at the end that will launch. We'd appreciate it if you'd take, that, uh, take a moment to complete that. And I've had a lot of questions about um, sharing the presentation post-webinar. We will send everyone a recording um, in, in an email. And if you would like a copy of the slides in PDF, uh, please take the survey. And I believe it's question number three. Just answer yes there. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming. Have a great day. And we hope you can join us next time.